Give you a second to meet me in Matthew 22. Starting in verse 23, the text reads like this. It says, The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they, they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, one of them a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Good morning, it's good to be with you and first time I've been at the community centre and I'm really grateful for the opportunity of seeing how you operate here on a Sunday morning and uh, to be with you at the turn of the year is a, is a special opportunity for me. Uh, I think when you know New Year's Eve comes and we consider that around the corner is a, a year that uh, the Bible is right when it says, you have not passed this way before. Um, it's a time when we ponder great questions. What life is all about? Where are we heading? What's the future for us? And I want to consider with you this morning just a, a handful of words from the passage that we've just read. Found in the 42nd verse 
of the chapter. And here are the words. What do you think then of the Christ? What do you think of Christ? There's no greater question than that. That will determine your whole destiny. So I want you to listen very carefully this morning as we consider that great question together. Jesus himself asked the question about himself, the Christ. Jesus himself asked the question because, as we've read, it tells us that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, were firing questions at him. One after another, questions of little importance, trivial things. And in answering them, he didn't dismiss them, he answered them. But now he's saying in effect to them, you listen for a moment to a question I have for you. He turns the tables on them. He says, now what do you think of the Christ? That's the question of all questions. He didn't even ask, what do you think of my people? What do you think of my disciples? What do you think of the church? But what do you think of Christ? Because Christianity, you know, stands or falls with Christ. It's the ultimate question, because as the passage draws on, we notice there comes a time when Jesus has spoken to them and it says, verse 46, that after that no one dared ask him any more questions. You know, there's one question that is more important than all the questions that crowd into your mind when you come to think about life and death and eternity and the gospel message of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's one question that trumps all other questions. I want to narrow it down this morning to that one key question. What do you think of the Christ? Here then is the supreme question for each of us to answer this morning. Now, what if... What a massive question it is. Where should we begin on it? I suggest it's sometimes helpful to break something down into smaller chunks. We'll do that this morning. and Let's narrow it down like this to begin with. Let me ask you, what do you think of his teaching? His teaching. Even the non-Christian world recognises that Jesus is the greatest teacher who has ever walked this earth. Verse 33 says, that when he'd been teaching a while, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So what do you think? of Christ's teaching. There's something obviously very remarkable about, it, remarkable about it. In fact, the people said of him, never a man spake like this man. 
He speaks as one having authority, they said on one occasion, and not like the scribes. You know, when the scribes taught, they quoted their authorities. authorities. Rabbi so-and-so says this, or another rabbi says that. And they quoted their authority. But Jesus never did that. He said, truly, truly, I say unto you, and that was his favourite way of dealing with the great questions that he had come to solve. Truly, truly, I say unto you, and he was his own authority. There's never been another teacher in all history like that. Einstein said about the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, his personality pulsates in every word. No wonder the crowd said, when, where did this man get all this? The carpenter of Nazareth. God is teaching from above. It was embodied in his person. He came into the world as the word and very message embodied in himself. That's why his teaching is the greatest. Don't compare him with other great teachers because he's not on that level. He is supreme over them all. He begins where all the others leave off. He answers every question you've got this morning if you'll but hear him. He gives you, if you're confused and you don't know where to turn for the truth anymore when it comes to spiritual things, then listen to him. Because when you listen to him, you'll get absolute truth. All with absolute authority and backed up with a life of utter integrity. Let's go on to think about that life that he lived. It wasn't, you see, just that Jesus was the greatest teacher, that he taught the highest standard, but the wonder of wonders was that he lived it. He lived it. He was the embodiment of his teaching. He was a dynamic example of his own values. It was the only sinless life the world has ever seen. Do you believe that? Amen. You read the record. There was one man who lived on the face of this earth who never had to say sorry. If you and I had our sins written on our foreheads, not one of us would have dared come through that door this morning. But he wasn't like that. He was pure. He was true. He was faithful. There were men who lived with him day in, day out for three years. And they gave 
they witnessed to the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw his every action, his every reaction, and yet they left it on record. Well, what was that record? Peter said he did no sin. John said in him was no sin. Paul, the apostle born out of due time, said he knew no sin. He wasn't even on nodding terms with it. The writer to the Hebrews said he was holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sin. Pilate, when he condemned the Saviour to death, said, I find no fault in him. Pilate's wife, who had a dream about him that night, said, I have nothing to do with that just man. The centur a centurion who organised the crucifixion said, truly this was the Son of God. The thief who died at his side on another cross said, we indeed suffer justly, but this man has done nothing wrong. He taught us to pray for forgiveness, didn't he? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. But he never prayed for forgiveness himself. Isn't that an interesting thing? He could face the world and say, which of you convinces me of sin? And they all bowed their heads. They had nothing to say against him. You see, the teaching was backed up with a life. There was no contradiction. And 2,000 years of history I've never produced another like it. That spotless, impeccable life. That, that has to be accounted for some way. What do you make of his life? Well, let me put you another aspect of this great question. What do you make of his miracles? The many miracles that he performed. Over 30 of them are recorded for us. And the Bible says, and many other miracles Jesus did, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe. And John chooses just seven miracles, doesn't he? Out of the many that he could have looked at. Tells us that Jesus walked on the water. He was the Lord of the environment. He was the Lord over every aspect and when it comes to his miracles how astounding how gobsmacking they are when you consider I suppose my medical mind is particularly fascinated by it but I, I stand in awe of all that Jesus did 
You know, everybody that he healed, he healed instantaneously, completely, and permanently. They'd, people didn't need to go for physiotherapy afterwards. If Jesus had healed them, it just stared you in the face if there was no sleight of hand about it. Gross pathology of all sorts. It wasn't just psychosomatic illness. This was no trick of the televangelist. Gross pathology, congenital blindness, he, he healed. Fixed curvature of the spine. Wasted, paralyzed limbs were made whole. And it wasn't just disease that obeyed him and, and fled. Sometimes, you know, they, they laid out at the whole sick population of the district and down the street and Jesus healed every single one of them. But it wasn't just disease, was it? He could control the wind with a word, control the waves with a word. Animals obeyed him. Every evil force was dismissed by his word of authority. And even death itself gave way in the presence of the, the Lord of life. You might reply, well, some of these things can be just explained away, can't they? Just, they're just folklore. Stories that sprang up and got embellished and down the years and you have to make allowance for these things. But we have it on the authority of the men who actually <laughs> lived with him. And people gave their eyewitness testimony to what they'd seen. Those witnesses were ex still extant when Paul is writing and refers to these things. They were not publicity stunts. Jesus seemed not to court popularity. Tell no one about it, he would often say. They're not publicity stunts. The thing about his miracles is that they were to authenticate his teaching and authenticate his person. So then, what do you make of his miracles. They were given supremely to authenticate his claims. And I want to turn fourthly to this question. What do you make of those claims that Jesus made about himself? How do you explain them? Here is a man who stands before other men and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What? what? What about a claim like this? I am the resurrection of the life. 
I am the light of the world. Everybody else is in darkness. What do you make of the audacious claim, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me? You imagine the man standing and saying, standing up here this morning and making those claims? There'd be two or three of us looking for two doctors to sign, <laughs> sign a piece of paper to commit that man to, mental, to a mental institution. Somebody has truly said, I think, there are only three possibilities when you consider the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either he was mad, that these were just quirks of some extraordinary freak, appearance amongst human beings. Either he was mad or he was bad. He was out to deceive people. Or he was God. There are only three possibilities. What do you make of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then if this is true of his life and his claims, what do you make of his unique death? When he comes to die, death has no hold on him. But he said, I've come to lay down my life. There's never another human being been able to say that because death claims us all. The wages of death of sin is death. And death has come into the world by one man, so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, with one exception. This spotless Lamb of God, who has no sins of his own, he's come to take the, the, the blame and the sin and to take it upon himself. You know, if Jesus had once said sorry, he would not have been able to stand in for you and me under the wrath of God. But because he is sinless, sinless in his birth, sinless in his life, when he comes to die, he's still sinless. But the sins of the world are put upon him. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. What do you make of his unique death? It's unique in three regards. It says that Jesus laid down his life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord there. That's why the Father loves me. Unique because it was voluntary. Because it was vicarious, that means he died for others, not himself. And he was victorious. He came through. Came through at the other side. He bore the wrath of God for you and me, my dear friend, at the cross of Calvary. I think I've told you this story once before. In America, on the northern, the great plains of North America, they get prairie fires which sweep over vast areas 
in double quick time. And if you're out on the prairie when the fire is coming, you're in mortal danger. But you know what the farmers do when they're caught like that? They strike a match and they light where they're, uh, they, 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 they scorch the ground just where they are. And then they stand on the scorched ground. And they know that they're safe there. When the great fire reaches them, it'll go all round them, but it'll not touch them. Why? Because where the fire has been, the fire can never touch again. That's smart, isn't it? But you know, here's the wonderful thing. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was dying in our place, bearing God's wrath for your sins and mine. And one day there'll be a great fire that will test every life, the Bible says. But if you stand on that scorched ground of Calvary, where Jesus met the wrath of God, the fire of God's wrath due to you and me, if you stand on that blessed spot, put your faith in Christ, one day when you stand before God, you'll be safe. Safe forevermore. Because where the fire has been, the fire can never touch again. Are you trusting in Christ? He's the only saviour, unique in his death, for he died for you. Unique in his resurrection. We hurry on. Unique in his resurrection. How do we explain the empty tomb? There are just three facts, you know, emerge out of that great story. Three facts that you can put together and know that the resurrection actually took place. We prove it on these three grounds. First of all, Jesus was really dead that first Good Friday. He really was dead. The Muslims say, you, you know, that he didn't die. It would be ludicrous for the, any son of God to die. He just swooned, uh, lost consciousness. Well... Those first century centurions and Roman soldiers were grimly thorough. They considered that leg breaking was unnecessary because he'd already died. They made doubly sure. They pierced his side, didn't they? To make doubly sure that he was dead. Oh, Jesus was dead. That's the first thing. And then the tomb really was empty. People say, well, there's a mix-up mix of tombs. But if, uh, or the body has been relocated or stolen, doesn't, that theory doesn't hold water when you consider the guard that was put on, the Roman guard that stood sentry by that tomb on pain of their lives.
in any way producing the body would have scotched the whole beginnings of the Christian movement. What about the seal and the stone? That great stone. All these things testify that the tomb really was empty. And the most important thing of all is this, that the disciples were really changed. The disciples were really changed. They weren't easily convinced. And they left their testimony. And were they prepared to die for a lie? No. But they were prepared to die for the truth. You see, we're done this morning. All these things come true in this one person, the Christ. And you might try and explain one bit of it or another bit of it. But you're like a man standing under a mountain when there's an avalanche. It just overwhelms you. The evidence for Jesus is overwhelming. All these in one man, supernatural in his birth, supernatural in his life, supernatural in his death, supernatural in his resurrection. How is it that human, humanity has never produced another Christ these last 2,000 years? Napoleon was right when he said, between Jesus and whomsoever in the world, there is no possible comparison. Not a bad testimony for a man who wasn't a Christian. You say, but I, I'll think about it. But I want to keep an open mind. An open mind is not an option when it comes to Jesus. This is evidence that demands a verdict. And you can't, in all honesty, remain uncommitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, unless you find another explanation for this avalanche of evidence. C.S. Lewis put it like this. If Christianity is not true, it is of no importance whatsoever. If it is true, it is of infinite importance. And the one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. You've just got to capitulate to it. You've got to fall down with Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. You receive him as the only saviour. And give him your life. Maybe a broken life, but it can be healed if you give all the pieces to Christ. Well, there's one other thing that you should remember, and with this, I'll finish and sit down. There's coming a day when this man, Jesus Christ, is going to be judge of the world. 
God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by a man of his appointment. And that's Jesus. And you know the great question on that day when we stand before him? Another great question will be this. Not what do I think of Jesus, but what does Jesus think of me? Because my destiny now is in his hands. He will judge the world in righteousness. And I ask you to take that, the challenge this morning and begin a new year with Christ as Saviour and Lord of your life. Amen.